You don't need to be a bioengineer to help change the shape of humanity. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, every January, I stay here in New York where it's really cold, and you get to go to a warm, sunny place called... Florida. <laughs> For yeah. Inside ETFs. Yeah, I mean, I bear, I never see the sun. I'm always inside, nerding out. It's a whirlwind of an event, so hence my voice. I'm, I feel fine, but my voice is going because I was just talking so much, and I'm a little worn out and spent between the panels and the networking and the parties and... Uh, but yeah, it was great. Um, but there's no sun to be had, at least for from my experience. I don't feel sorry for you, and but I do feel sorry for myself because I've had to hear you talk about this so many times. Listen, next year we we should go and set up a booth and just do the show. Why or, didn't we do that this year? It's I don't a know. great idea. Yeah, we got to plan ahead. We, we'll we do I it. think we brought it up in like December. It was just too late. I'm so, in. Yeah, I'm we'll in. do it. Got well, a lot of good feedback. A lot of people come up and say, "Oh man, I love the podcast." Da da da. You know, it's um, I just come up. I don't know. Maybe half a dozen people came up and said that. So that's good. But in addition to not wanting to hear from you, we actually have new people yep. who went to the conference this year, and they're going to come on the show and talk to us about what it was like to be a freshman there. Yeah, this might be my tenth year. Ugh. So I'm probably a little jaded. It's I really don't feel to sorry what, for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the first year I went, I think it was just me and Chris Condon. Then I went a couple of years. I was the only person there from Bloomberg. And then data started joining. Then news. And this year, uh, our index team was there with like maybe ten people. So there was probably twenty, twenty-five Bloomberg people at the event, all told. Uh, so it's definitely become the like Fort Lauderdale Bureau. Yeah. The. <laughs> It's actually technically in Hollywood. Okay, sorry. And as you drive up, there's a Hollywood Boulevard, and I'm just like, it's just not, not different, ho- different not Hollywood. Hollywood. Totally different scene. Okay, so joining us today on uh, Trillions, first time for both Katie Greifeld, who's a reporter with Bloomberg News, as well as Claire Ballantyne. This time on Trillions, Inside, Inside ETFs, Part 3. Katie, Claire, welcome to Trillions. What's your assessment? Should I actually go there next year? Oh, yeah. Even if you don't have time to go to the beach, you can at least look out on the water, okay. So, which is sort of depressing. Through glass windows. Yeah, on the yeah. Other side. I agree. It's a nice view, but there's a depressing element to it. Did you guys get out outside at all or not much? I did a little bit. I sat on the beach and ate lunch. Katie went for a run. I did go for a run. It was at 630 in the morning, though. That's when the uh, 5K fun run was held. And uh, you could see the beach. It was just dark. And there's celebrity, sort of. There was a celebrity. Ryan Hall, uh, if you don't know, he's big in my world because I'm a runner. But he's a, he, he was a former big-time runner, marathon. Former big-time runner, retired now. But uh, you might know him because he ran a sub-205 marathon. Which is fast. Which is very fast at the Boston Marathon. So that was a big deal. And he some hills. It, yeah. <laughs> there's some hills there, and I, I think he still holds the half marathon record for the U.S., so he's a big deal. I didn't know he was going to be there, so that woke me up. There you go. And James on my team was jazzed. Uh, he got a picture with him. It was like he met 
Bob Dylan or something. I mean, it was like a major deal for him. Oh, I yeah. never heard of the guy. I run, but I'm not I'm not in the marathon circuit. But um, that's you awesome. You running? I want to I want a video of that. I think it'll be pretty boring for you, but I'll I'll send you one. Okay, all yeah. right, we'll take it. I'll do that for you. Okay, so. Our shtick with Inside ETFs is that we give you a recorder and you go talk to people. Yeah. If I'm talking to somebody and I, I feel like they say something that's you know kind of cool, representative of a bigger theme, I'll just get 40 seconds from them and uh, we can run through the clips. Who's first? First up, and I'm guessing you guys will agree with me that Active Non-Transparent or ANTS was probably the biggest topic. If there was a theme that was threaded through a lot of this. Which we've talked about a few times on Trillions. We have. So- we did a whole show with Dan McCabe, who's the uh, Presidian... Uh, CEO, which you should go back and listen if you want a primer on what this is. Because we think this is a theme for the year. Like, this is going to be a huge one. Yeah. All these, like, $15 trillion worth of active mutual funds are trying to figure out a way to do the ETF. And this is a way to do it without showing their holdings every day. So it's kind of like having their cake and eat it, too. The question is, is there demand? So first guy uh, we interviewed was uh, Daniil Shapiro from Cerulli. Now, Cerulli has done a study that basically found that ETF issuers like these things are going to bomb, which is I'm in that camp pretty much. Some other people think they're going to be successful. But Daniil said he saw some things that make him more optimistic. And so I asked him about that. We gave them until 2025, so more than five years out. Five years, less than 10 billion, half of the respondents. Incredibly pessimistic. Why? I think uh, we, we ourselves highlighted a number of challenges that the products would face. We thought that uh, the asset managers would be conflicted in offering their best products into this particular wrapper. We thought that uh, they wouldn't want to launch the right products right away. They might start with something smaller. And uh, as we've seen the new filings from Fidelity, from T. Rowe Price, it it seems that there's a lot of promise. They're willing to let some of their uh, best, some of their largest offerings into the ETF wrapper, which makes us more optimistic. What he's basically saying is that we now see the filings coming in for what of these mutual funds funds they're going to actually try to convert into this new structure. And he was saying that like he thought maybe they'd take their mediocre or crappy funds and just try to get something going with them on this. But he found that some of the funds they're going to launch were some of their better funds, not all of them. And that gave him some hope. Blair, not only are you new to Inside ETFs, you're new to ETFs. At Cross Asset Reporter now, what do you what do you make of this ant moment? Well, definitely everyone that I talked to agreed this was the theme of the conference is what everyone's talking about. But I get to talk to anyone besides people trying to issue these that really agree they're going to take off. I think there's a lot of skepticism about are these going to gather assets? And talking with uh, Ryan Sullivan from Brown Brothers Hairman, we both agreed People are just kind of talking in circles at this point. We have to wait until these launch and sort of see what happens. Katie, what do you think? Well, it's interesting to that point that uh, perhaps people won't want to be- offer their best strategies in an ETF wrapper. We were talking to um, Greg Friedman at Fidelity, and he said that the investors are really wrapper agnostic. You know, it just they want the best strategy, they want the best return that they can get at you know the best price. So that was kind of interesting. And to this broader debate. It was interesting. On Greg Friedman's panel um, on active non-transparency on Tuesday, there was this sort of spar that broke out between um, Fidelity and then Doug Jones from the New York Stock Exchange over whether this would herald the death of a mutual fund. Uh, But to Claire's point, you know, we've heard from a lot of optimistic issuers, but people are really looking to see whether they hold water. Did the fight have to get broken up? (laughs) <laughs> this it's is two people in suits like talking even a little spark i mean some of these panels can be very boring 
people. This is actually, I thought that was one of the better ones. Absolutely. Because they were taking subtle shots at each other because they're all offering different rappers and trying to appeal. They were all competitors. And we kept coming back to it. The moderator did step in, but there was a point there where it was just the two of them talking. The, the bigger problem is, even if you launch your best fund, like the T-Row Blue Chip, so far it looks like the pricing is going to be 50 to 60 basis points. Um, so that's, I guess, a decent deal if you're a mutual fund investor. But for ETF people, I mean, they want everything below 20 bips. To me, that's the single biggest issue. And I guess we'll see. And large cap equity is where they're going to launch the first ones. And that seems to be the area that people want active the least. Uh, active flows tend to be a little stronger in fixed income and in international and emerging markets where there's more opportunity, small caps. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm interested, um, just like everybody else. And um, as you know, Todd at Rosenbluth and I have... Uh, another big bet, which is how much will they have at the end of the year? $10 billion is the over-under. I have the under. And if I win, this time I'm ordering sake. Next. Next up, we have former Congressman Barney Frank. So you do sometimes get so, some celebrities here, hence Ryan Hall. But Barney Frank wasn't there just to talk like uh, hype people up or just be a celebrity. He's there to actually, he's on the board of a new LGBTQ um, index that will be an ETF very soon. So we asked him what he was being, in, you know, why he was involved with this. Uh, for many years, uh, when I first got involved with gay rights in 1972, we were on the defensive. We were fighting against bad things. We've reached a point now where, for millions of us who live in much of the country, we can start going after good things based on our sexuality. That is, we're no longer trying to defend ourselves against bigotry in most cases. We want now to go forward, advance our legitimate interests in a way that's constructive, and that's uh, an ETF. Now, before we dig into that, I got a part two to this, which is Billy Bean, who is a, pro- a former professional baseball player who came out. Moneyball? At- Billy Bean? No, it's actually, oh. same- I asked him, he's like, yeah, it's very confusing. <laughs> I know. Different Billy Bean, a player. He played on uh, the Detroit Tigers, I believe, uh, with Alan Trammell. Um, and he was he actually had some cool stories about playing with Tony Gwynn and these players I used to have baseball cards of. Anyway, different topic. He was talking about being a major league baseball player and being in the closet and then coming out. And that's part of what got him involved with this as well. And it's a really um, heartfelt story. Here we go. And I made the big leagues when I was 21. And so you don't make the big leagues unless you're a baseball player. And, you know, there was no internet in 1987. And, and, uh, you know, I didn't quite understand my sexual orientation and I got married very young and, and, uh, tried to be everything to everyone. And, as I got a little older and was in the big leagues for a little bit, um, I started to become more self-aware. And, and I met somebody, and I left my marriage, and, and uh, that person died uh, tragically very young um, the night before what was my last season in the big leagues. And instead of talking to my family or my roommate was Brad Osmus, who's been a big league manager, played 18 years in the big leagues, um, it just seemed like from the information that I had in my life that someone like me didn't belong in baseball and and I just I just stopped playing and with no explanation for anybody didn't show up uh, for spring training the next year heavy right and so I was it, not expecting that yeah no look this is I, I played both of those because there's this, there's the Barney Frank who also has a real story in this but when you dig into these small ETFs there are some real interesting stories and people who really care. So sometimes these small ETFs get blown off, but even the whiskey ETF had an interesting story about this guy in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, and I find that's where the, the the passion is. What was Billy's ETF connection? 
So Barney's on that board, so is he, and so is Martina Navratilova. So this is an index now, but it should be an ETF soon. It'll be interesting if it gains traction because there was one called Pride, P-R-I-D, but it didn't really take off. Although someone pushed back and said, you know, this was UBS trying to sort of like co-op this movement. This is from the movement. One thing that I find interesting about that is like probably two people who had no idea about ETFs and then all of a sudden they end up in inside ETF in Florida, kind of like our guests. Uh, did you guys meet anybody else like this? I did not, but I think it really speaks to the idea of this field is so crowded with ETFs and how are you going to stand out? And I wrote an article about this and some of the ways that people are trying to differentiate themselves. And I think it sort of combines both like ESG and kind of wanting to do good, but also wanting to compete with the big players. And how do you do that? You make yourself unique. Katie, how much ESG talk was there? There was so much ESG talk. We've heard so much about this in the past three weeks. And it was it was interesting. You know, everyone says it's here to stay. Everyone's excited about it, wants to get on board. You know who's not? Eric. Eric. Well, I was going to say, no one knows how to define it. And it almost feels like, you know, pass the potato. Because we've asked several people, several issuers, how are you defining this? And they are really relying on third parties at this point. So I'm not, I, I just worry about the investor. I worry this is like active mutual funds part two. Because like Matt Hogan in the Best New ETF Pundit Smackdown argued for SUSL, which is the iShares ESG. It's I think it might be the largest ESG fund, bar none. Guess what's not not in it? Apple, Facebook, Netflix, Amazon, Berkshire, JP Morgan. I mean, these are the leaders of their industries. It's like a car without an engine. And maybe those stocks will actually fall because of their ESG in the future and this this thing uh, outperforms. But I don't know. Those are some heavy-duty companies You're not that aren't in there. And people are buying this and not knowing that. I think they're going to be surprised. If they buy it and know it, fine. But I just worry that they're going to be disappointed if it underperforms. Electric cars don't have engines. That's true. There is a metaphor there. Yeah, maybe that, that's a good way to sell it. But I, I, I wouldn't buy it. By the way, when I write about this, I get them like, publicly. People will be like, yeah, you're, you know, what about this and this? But I'll get a lot of messages offline. Like, And at the conference, I wrote this article about this. And people were like, you're spot on. I can't say anything to agree with you publicly, but I agree. I think people um, are sort of leaning towards this idea of an ESG tilt instead of just a flat out ESG. And people that I talked with said that, you know, because there's a question of how do you define it, you can sort of define it in a way that's like ESG light almost, and that might have more success. That if if people are going to use it as like a 5% allocation on top of their equities, that's fine. Then it becomes some like a theme. But then are you really cleaning up your portfolio because the rest of your portfolio still owns those companies like Exxon and whatnot? So that to, to me, a lot of this is I just worry it's being sold like the $5 organic avocado. It's being sold so you feel like you're doing something, but it's really you're kind of getting hosed a little. Well, the question I asked a bunch of people at this conference was whether this ESG enthusiasm is really a bull market phenomenon. You know, when everything is rallying you kind of have the luxury of being able to invest along your values. But when we actually do hit a downturn, if and when, you know, are people going to have that luxury of choice? And so far, you know, no one wanted to disagree with the buzzword of the week. But um, the point that Phil McIntosh at NASDAQ said was it's going to depend on whether the returns are actually better in ESG. And there's been a lot of conflicting research on that. So it might rest on that. Yeah, if you believe ESG is a factor that will have find alpha, um, by all means, you can just drop a little on your portfolio. But if you are looking to clean up your portfolio, those are the people I worry about because you're going to sell your Vanguard 500 for this. 
just be careful, know what you're owning. Um, and I think that's a big issue. And MSCI, the head of MSCI came out recently and said, if you don't, something like, if you don't do this, you're, you will dramatically underperform. I find that to be very dangerous talk. I, I just think that's irresponsible, to be honest. Um, I think it's just better to sort of like offer caveats here and be honest about the proposition because you don't want someone to wake up and trail the market by 35% and be like, you know, why did I do this and get angry about it? Who'd you talk to next? So while I'm a skeptic, there's someone I think a little further to the right of me, which is the MAGA guy. There's an ETF with the ticker MAGA, Hal Lambert. It, it leans towards uh, companies that donate or have GOP values or donate to GOP, I, I believe. Rachel Evans did a great yeah. Trillions episode with him before. Yeah, we did a whole episode with him, and he's a really nice guy. He was talking about Larry Fink's climate letter, and uh, he offered some sort of like pushback on that, and here he is. Well, look, my biggest problem with ESG is that it's it's all just soft issues. So it, it's very relative. There's no real hard evidence on anything. So it's opinionated, and it's being driven by the UN out of out of Europe. And now they're forcing U.S. companies to adopt policies. And it's basically policies that they can't get passed legislatively by the left. And so they're trying to basically front end that and go to the corporations and force this on them. So if you look at what like BlackRock is doing, Larry Fink, you know, they've now come out and said everything's going to be sustainable in what they're doing. Well, you know, what, what does that do to clients that don't have that same view? And by the way, if you look at BlackRock and you look at, you know, what they're doing with their own company, you know, BlackRock has jets. They have their own private jets and, and uh, whatever. I'm fine with jets. The other thing they're doing, though, is they're leasing those jets out uh, when they're not using them. So when you talk about global warming and climate change and you're worried about all that and you're going to lease jets out to make a few extra thousand dollars to put carbon in the atmosphere, is that really ESG friendly or are they really ESG focused or are they just uh, doing it for marketing? Hey, Hal. No one wants to say what he said, but there's some truth to that. And there is a lot of hypocrisy and it needs to be said. And I think you can identify hypocrisy and still be for the movement to fight climate change. Emitting carbon is emitting carbon. I think everybody has to contribute. That's not unfair, is it? No, I mean, my take is that even if it is PR, that's sort of better than nothing. It's a movement forward. It's a step forward. And at least I agree. it's being talk, talking about. I just think the some of the pressure should be punched up. Right now, I feel like it's all about how are pe- the people going to like change. But what about the elite who who just seem to be the biggest carbon emitters out there? Uh, there's just not that much pressure on them. It's weird. I didn't see one Davos article that really focused on that. How has MAGA performed? MAGA not having a good run. It's uh, up 15.1% since launching and S&P is like 33. So it's basically half. Now, uh, MAGA, I think, leans towards energy and industrial stocks. So that so, would explain it. Yep. Yeah, it's a sector tilt away from... Yeah, look, MAGA, to me, is is the anti-ESG sector-wise. You get more energy and industrials and almost no tech. So if tech falls out of bed, I always say, if you think, if you're anti-high beta and growth and tech, and you think those you know FANG-type names are going to fall out of bed, MAGA is not a bad play, even if you disagree. It's sort of like an anti-tech, energy, industrial-heavy kind of ETF. We asked BlackRock about Hal's comments, and it responded that it offsets travel-related emissions by retiring carbon credits and also reduced air travel per employee by 21% as of year-end 2018. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. 
anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Okay, we have some more names on your list. Who's next? Next is Dan Draper from uh, Invesco. And I think another issue was, you know, costs are falling. Everybody wants free trading. Fidelity just announced fractional shares after announcing free trading. He was talking a little bit about thinking about how asset managers are going to evolve and change as headline expense ratios fall to almost nothing. Once we have a large platform, can ETFs be a source you know, to bring clients, new clients, onto a platform? And once they're there, can we effectively follow them through their data you know, and being able to find other revenue sources throughout the platform? So I think it's interesting concept of you know, potentially moving from assets under management to data under management. So, you know, that's a, that's a great line, by the way. And I think what we're going to see is five or six companies, a lot of the assets just flow to these big sort of consolidated giant companies that are everything to everybody. And what they do besides make a little money on the expense ratio is going to be other revenues. It's how can you creatively earn some money on all that assets and all the people that are part of the assets. And that's sort of what he's talking about. Yeah. Well, first off, his idea of data under management instead of assets under management. I'm dying to call this Draper's dumb idea, D-U-M. So <laughs> want to get that on the record first. But I think it's really interesting idea, and I think it has a lot of merit to it. Um, I My pushback is, what does data mean? That's just such a buzzword. Um, but I do think, you know, these companies are going to need to make money somehow. And that could be a pathway forward. I think it's a question of, can you use the data? Can you gather it? Can you clean it? And can you implement it? Yeah. I want to see what the pop-up on the experience is like, hey, we've been scraping your data and we noticed X. And it's like, ooh, (laughs) you've been doing what? Yeah. But the the low fee, the zero fee in a lot of cases, ETF war that we've seen, that was another big topic. And we spoke to Rory Tobin at Spider about that. And um, he said that what they've been doing is cutting costs elsewhere, you know, trying to bring more digital capabilities to portfolio management. And it was it was interesting. He likened it to Ryanair, the European low cost airline, how they may not have seat back pockets. You may not get to your destination on time, but, you know, it works. They're Europe's largest low budget airline. So he's trying to tap into that wisdom and for a while they weren't going to have seats they were going to be your right. yeah. standing <laughs> position flying so subway yeah. yeah i mean i get his point there but i also think it's a terrible metaphor because people hate airlines that do that they hate it but it's working for ryanair they're profitable eric who who's next next is uh you know we talk about dan draper runs a huge company and their struggles but then i moderated moderated a panel called the rebels which is about the small issuers and indie issuers and how they can survive in a era of giants so here's Andrew Chanin of um, UFO, the space ETF. He also was formerly of Hack. He came out with this ETF Hack and he got into a, a lawsuit uh, with his own white label issuer. And I thought Hack was one of the greatest theme launches ever. In fact, it, I think it inspired a generation of, of theme launches. UFO isn't bad. 
Yeah. So after Hack kind of became a controversy, he launched the new fund called UFO. Long story short, he's going to comment on the Hack controversy. And he's also going to comment on why he prefers to be a small issuer, because I thought maybe after that he would just go and sort of join BlackRock or, or Vanguard or something like that and just, you know, take that road. But he's like he likes to he likes to be the small guy. One of the best things I thought that actually came out of the, the hack fiasco is there's now a federal ruling showing through the through the courts that actually a white label client does have protections in this industry. And before it was an unknown and we hadn't had to deal with this issue before. So although there was a lot of questions and possible concerns, if anything, I feel like this is a huge win for the overall ETF industry as well as for white label clients. And just talk a little bit about uh, the role of a small issuer. It seems so hard from the outside looking in. Um, you know, why not just join a big firm and live a comfortable life? You're right. There's absolutely nothing easy about being a small issuer and going off on your own. However, it allows you to partner with the partners that you want to work with, it allows you to push forward the ideas that you believe in, and allows you to shape your organization the way you think an organization should be structured. And I think that freedom and allowance gives you the ability to create something truly different. And that's why I'm thrilled to be able to be an independent issuer. Did anybody on that panel say that, say that they weren't thrilled to be an independent issuer? <laughs> no, but they, they express challenges. Like when you come out with a product and then BlackRock or Spider launches something very similar for half the cost, uh, that's a bummer. And th- that product has a better likelihood of getting onto a platform that like a Merrill or UBS has. And so sometimes the small guys are just left out of the distribution system. And uh, it's, a, it's a rough road. I, I feel for them and I, I tend to lean indie. That's why I picked an indie fund for my best new ETF pundit SmackDown. Um, I, I think how they, did that go? Well, I didn't win, but I, I think I made you a never good case, win. and I got a couple uh, emails saying you, you made a good point. But did, did you place in the top three? I don't think so. I think I, I'm in the I'm in the middle usually. Look, this this indie the best pundit SmackDown. I think it really favors moments and improvisational comedy. The person who won was amazing. I don't know if her ETF was the greatest ever. It's TDV. It's like a tech dividend fund. But she had a great moment on stage, and she was very likable. And the presentation is huge, and you know she nailed it. But that said, I'm proud of what I presented because I picked the uranium miner ETF, and I basically premised that, look, people want to fight climate change, but they don't want to give up their lifestyles. And wind and solar won't cover the difference. So you need something to fill it in. And as Bill Gates said, this is carbon-free. It's scalable and it's 24-7. So if there's even a little public consensus or embracement of nuclear power, then this thing should shoot up. And I like the fact that it launched after a horrible back test. The sector's down 80% in the past eight years. And so it has a lot of room to run. So I wanted to just be on the record presenting this thing ahead of time. Because if it starts to go up, people are going to go, yeah, Eric was first on that. And if it doesn't, nobody will probably even bother to like say anything. Katie, Claire, <laughs> did you guys meet any indie issuers that you were impressed by? Well, I met Andrew, which who I'd spoken with before, but got to talk with him some more. And um, really interesting marketing there. I think it just really speaks to how people are trying to stand out. I think he had astronaut ice cream or something. Yeah, the guy that we just heard had ice cream. Yeah, he had a huge green blow-up alien with a UFO shirt on. He wore these huge orange sneakers that were the first ever Nike NASA collaboration. So, so sneakers you wear in space. And then he had space ice cream. He he went all out. Who's next? Yeah, next up we got James Mortier, as who is from GMO. 
sometimes they have economists and people like that speak. It's not an ETF kind of conversation, but what he said I thought was fascinating. He thought the 60-40 portfolio was in trouble. Which is and like a mainstay of huge. portfolio management. All the advisors there probably have something like a 60-40. So I thought this was interesting to hear him challenge that this is going to have a rough road going forward. One of the big challenges, I think, for people is the 60-40 is simply not going to work the way that people expect it to work. And that's a real challenge. And we are going to end up with a portfolio that is a very long way short of the expectations that people have from their investments. And what are some ways to, like an alternative or in, in your case, like EM value? Yeah, so I think you can do better than a 60-40. And right now that, that involves owning things like emerging market values stocks, which are uh, beaten up and, and loathed, but offer the chance of a decent equity-like return. So I think you can still build a portfolio that makes sense um, and will give you the, the kind of returns you need, but it will look incredibly unconventional. And that's why most people will, will balk at it. They just won't be able to stomach the, the visual perception of what they're doing. Katie, what do you what do you make of the death of 60-40 conversation? You know, I it's something that you hear every once in a while, especially when markets are really... Uh, going down the toilets. But uh, I haven't heard anyone, you know, give me a really full-throated case for why it would die. So it was really interesting to hear James's comments. And I think part of it is that, uh, remember in 2018, um, stocks and bonds pretty much both fell. The only thing that worked was cash. That was called the everything down. And then 2019, everything goes up. If everything starts going up and down, 60-40, there is no more diversification. So what he's saying is look out of that. And I was at an alternative panel that talked about that too, said maybe you should look for a long short strategy, something that has an alternative uh, stream. So in case 60-40, in case both of those start falling, you have something. His big pitch though was EM value. He thinks emerging markets value is a P of 10. And that is a great place to be right now. I'm not saying to use it, but if you are interested, the ticker that would do that is PX, PXH. It's pretty much the only EM value ETF out there. Claire, how are you doing on on all your tickers? Whew. Trying to Here's a question we usually ask at out. the end. I'm going to ask it now. What's your new favorite ticker? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I like some of the cyber ones. I like Hack. That's kind of a fun one. It feels like alphabet soup. I'm still trying to get my head around all ha- of them. Hack is like a, an all-time great. Yeah, it's a top 5 easily by by anybody's standards. It's a great one. Eric, uh we got another clip? Yeah. So um, sometimes you go to these events and you run into actual like founding father types, legends. And, you know, unless you know them, you may not even know you're next to somebody. Here's Jay Baker, who worked at Amex back in the day, and he was tasked with trying to get more volume in SPY because nobody was trading it. It almost failed and the whole industry would never happen. And And this is the guy that kind of saved SPY. And we had Jay Baker on our special trillions about the creation, actually, of SPY. Yeah, if you go and Google the ETF story, it's a great six-part series if you want to learn more. But it, at that point, it was an American stock exchange product. State Street wasn't involved. They did get involved with the marketing later, and they did a great job. But in the beginning, it, it was moving slowly. So what happened was a senior executive at the American Stock Exchange approached me and Steve Bloom and said, look, Spider's moving a little bit slowly. I want you to do institutional marketing. I want you to get $100 million in the Spider within six months. So we went around to all the different um, institutional firms. There was some interest, you know, there was interest to an extent, but it was interest, a little bit of a shrug of the shoulders. So we went to one in particular called Daiwa Securities, and we answered about 
2,000 questions that they had about the product. And they ended up basically creating $250 million worth of Spider. Spider was at 45, so this is several million shares. And the reason they did it was they found an opportunity. And the opportunity was people wanted to short the Spider. So they basically created, hedged, created 250 million, sold short 250 million uh, S&P 500 futures. So they were hedged, whether the market went up or down 500 points and loaned out the Spider. I didn't ever hear that before. Yeah, it, it it's, tells you that the early days of ETFs, they were for institutions to do trading. They were supposed to be like a better version of a futures contract. Then BlackRock or Barclays came along and saw the retail opportunity. But either way, I just like these stories where it's like a Silicon Valley story where nothing's going right, but you just hustle and then you get a couple breaks and, and then boom, you get that tipping point. And this is you know before that for sure. How much hustle was there on the floor of this place? There's lots of running around and not just in the actual run. It was, uh, I saw some people kind of sweaty trying to get to all their meetings. <laughs> but <laughs> I think it's cool to, you know, be new to the space. It's really neat to be in the same room with people who are here from the beginning. I think it's also a reminder of how kind of young the area is and how it's still up and coming. Yeah, it was a great mix of people who, you know, were around at the start, you know, when the first ETFs came out. Like, for example, we spoke to John Jacobs, who was one yeah. of the creators of the Qs. And then, you know, there's a lot of young people, such as Claire as myself, people who are very new to the space, and you have those hustlers there. And we're going to close it out with? We're going to close with this very um, unique site called Jobs and ETFs. Anybody out there is looking for, and by the way, people do come to this without jobs to maybe, like, you know, find somebody to, you know, there is definitely, like, networking and I've seen people find jobs here. So here we have Claude Mitrash, who is one of the people who runs jobs and ETFs. And I just asked him a little bit about, you know, what this site does and, you know, how many jobs are on there. And it's, it's really a great resource. At the moment, we have over 100 jobs listed on the website. Uh, most of these jobs comes from companies that want to expand their teams or expand their, um, their, uh, their portfolios. Yeah, I mean, 100 jobs, and I've gone on there. They're from big companies, small companies. They're in all over the world. Um, you, you know, again, sometimes I feel like it's the 90s economy inside ETFs. Um, again, the revenue growth isn't major because of the price compression, but the assets are flowing here. It's always leading in assets, and so there's a ton of jobs uh, coming across. And what he specializes in is getting these new companies that are coming over like a T-Row and trying to fit like who from the ETF world might come over. So we see this move a lot where the head of capital markets at like say a Spider or a Vanguard will go over to lead like an older mutual fund company. That just happened with Tim Coyne left Spider to go to T. Rowe and lead that up. And so this is a trend we've seen and he's kind of helps facilitate that. I am shocked that we haven't talked about this before. This seems like a great episode. I know we should have him in. Um, and his partner is really cool too. I had a ate dinner with him and had one too many Japanese old fashions, I think they'd be good guests. All right. So the other part of jobs, I guess you could say, is like there are after parties where you get to like, you know, meet people. What kind of after parties did you go to? Um, Other than, you know, just consuming too much. (laughs) (laughs) There's the one the conference has by the pool bar, and I think everybody goes to that. But then there's like dinners and stuff. So I went to BBH dinner on the first night. And then I, on the second night, I went to an informal one by Ryan Curlin, organized from Alpha Architect, which had a lot of fintwit there. And that was at a Mexican restaurant, Margaritaville, about, you know, two miles down the road. Both fun. Claire? I didn't do a ton of partying, but I enjoyed the cocktail hours by the beach. And just, I think we should just pick up the Bloomberg New York office and move it to Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. Uh, I'm in it's, favor it's of It's Hollywood, that. Claire. Uh, Hollywood, my uh, bad. Katie? 
It was a great scene. Um, yeah, the hotel party, that was great. And uh, I went to one of the parties held by Jane Street. The uh, name of the restaurant escapes me, but one of the beauties of being in Florida in January, even though I didn't go outside that much, I did feel like it was okay to order an Aperol spritz. <laughs> you know, it was okay to drink a summer drink. I, I totally agree. You're, and you're in Hollywood. Claire, Katie, thanks for joining us in Trillium. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you'd like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can find Katie at K Greifeld, K-G-R-E-I-F-E-L-D, and Claire Ballantyne's at CFB underscore 18. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Jarrell Dillard. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.